Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 251. When it comes to new products and new items, life's about a very, very meaningful point of difference. Attention gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, gift biz gal, Sue Monheit. Hi there, it's Sue, and I'm so happy that you're joining me here today. I want to share with you how this episode came about, because it's really random, yet I find over and over again that this is how it goes. This is how to make things happen. So it also serves as a lifetime example. For the past two years or so, I've been meeting up with a small group of people the third Thursday of the month, just for fun. Our friendships formed from the chamber, and so sometimes our conversations do turn to business, but mostly we connect and support each other in overall life, I guess I'd say. Well, a few months back, we were walking out of the coffee shop, passing other tables on the way, and Sharon stops for a second and says, oh, look, Sue, don't you use these in your business? She was pointing to a brochure about a product that we do indeed have made for the ribbon print company. The two people at the table, of course, looked up, and then one of them says, Sue? Sue Monheit, is that you? Truth is, at first I didn't recognize him. It had been years. Rob was a very successful sales associate from my corporate days. He didn't work on my sales team, but I always knew he'd continue to do well. You know how it is how you can sense that with some people? Rob and I agreed to meet the following week to catch up. Not only did I want to know what was going on with Rob these days and what he was involved in, but we had so many common acquaintances that I hadn't kept up with, I was really curious what he knew about some of them. Equally, I had acquaintances that he wasn't aware of, so I knew it would make for a really interesting conversation. And Rob didn't disappoint. He stayed connected with lots of people, different from the many I still talk to. And equally as exciting, We each have some valuable introductions for each other, people that we've met along the way that we can share with each other to help each other advance towards our goals. This is a perfect demonstration of how getting out from behind your computer screen or production studio and connecting with people can lead to surprising outcomes. One of these introductions was with Roger, our guest today, and that is how this episode came to be. You're going to hear from an expert on how to find the white space in your industry, an unmet need that is just waiting for a solution, and then what to do to bring the idea to life. We also talk in detail about getting placement on your local grocery shelves. So if you're the maker of a consumable product, perk up your ears. There's great stuff here for you. Given that, let's just get right into it, shall we? Today, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Roger Sudnick. Roger is the founder and CEO of Good Measures Foods, a company that is improving scratch baking for today's busy bakers. 
Roger leveraged experience gained by leading triple-digit growth for several startup retail brands to launch Good Measures. He has a passion for building businesses by developing winning strategies, overlaying a healthy dose of pragmatism, and collaborating with excellent partners. Roger enjoys biking, family, and travel. And Roger's personal mantra, the measure with which you measure, will in return be measured out to you. Roger, welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Well, hi, Sue, and thank you for inviting me for the conversation today. (laughs) I'm thrilled that you're here, and I do have to tell all our listeners, I had to repeat your mantra how many times, maybe 20, before I just got it right. (laughs) (laughs) You got it right. That's the important thing, right? Absolutely. Now, as we start off, I like to do something a little bit creative in a way for our listeners to get to know you a little bit differently, and that is by having you describe yourself through a motivational candle. So if you were to tell us what your candle would look like by color and quote, tell us a little bit more about you, Roger. All right. Thanks, Sue. If I was a motivational candle, my color would be sky blue. And the reason for sky blue is it because it represents the sky and the sky is endless and represents endless possibilities. Blue sky is calm. When the sky is blue, the day is sunny. It's a great reason for optimism. So sky blue is my color for my candle because it represents unlimited possibilities. As far as a motivational quote, I have a quote from John C. Maxwell, who's an author that's focused on leadership. It's life is a matter of choices and every choice you make defines you. And this one's special to me, especially because I've used something very simple, an abbreviated version on my children as they were growing up. The version I use on them is life is about the choices you make. And they heard it from me probably 100,000 times as they grew up. And now I have a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old boy, and they'll play it back to me sometimes, that life is about the choices you make. Oh, so you're getting a taste of your own medicine here. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But at the end of the day, what you choose to do, and also importantly, what you choose not to do, will make up what you are. It defines you. And for me, it's a reminder every day what I decide to do and what I decide not to do there's a question around that. Does it help me meet my personal goals, and my professional goals? And you're in control. You know, and I think so often there is the mentality out there that things happen to us versus us taking control and making things happen for ourselves. And that's what this quote tells me too. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great ad, Sue. We get this life to live. And why should we be reactionary when we don't have to be sitting that way? We can make things happen for ourselves, which is what all of us who are listening to this show want to do. We want to take something that we're making and creating and either start sharing it with everybody or continue and grow our following so more people can have the things that we make. We are masters of our own destiny. That's right. And you are going to help us out with that as we get into your product. I'm so excited. I never knew a product like yours existed. And yes, I'm teasing the audience right now because I want to start with what led you to Good Measures. It's always so interesting to hear the path that people take. So share a little bit of your backstory with us. Well, Sue, this story starts like so many other stories. It starts with cigarettes, of course. Of course. (laughs) Of course it does. (laughs) I have a colleague who I've worked with in the past, and he's brilliant. He's a retired marketer, and he's done great work, and I really, really respect the way he thinks. And one of his big things is that innovation in grocery products, which is where I play, it's about packaging. 80% of the innovation is in packaging, 
and 20% is actually in new products or product changes. And what that means is things like water, right? It used to come in for just from the tap and then went to big bottles and then went to small bottles. The innovation there was just packaging. What was in the bottle didn't change. It's still water. But the functionality changed because of the package. A smaller bottle becomes portable and it gives people an opportunity to stay hydrated on the go. That's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. So this was six years ago, seven years ago, maybe. And we were having lunch and he had a new piece of consumer insight. And the insight was, it's a bit dated now, but the insight was when the average smoker goes out to a bar, they smoke five cigarettes in the night and that night when they go to the bar. So his big thing was change the packaging and change cigarettes from a 20 pack to a five pack and you'll be meeting a consumer need. They won't have extra cigarettes. They'll have just what they need for the evening out. And he was interested in potentially trying to get that off the ground. And for many, 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 many reasons, I had no interest in going into the tobacco business. So what I did do after lunch, I said, let's go. And we went over to a local grocery store and we walked around the grocery store reviewing. We walked up and down every aisle and we stopped in front of every category in the store. And what we were looking for is a category that hadn't had any packaging innovation for quite some time. So we walked the store twice and we ended up stopping in front of the baking category. And the baking category is things like flour and sugar and ingredients you use when you scratch bake. And we had a suspicion that that category looked a whole bunch like it did back in the 1950s, that there really hadn't been a lot of packaging innovation. We Googled it, we looked online, and we did see that the section in the store didn't look too different than it did back in the 1950s when June Cleaver was baking. Yeah, I'm picturing what you saw on the shelves were maybe pound and half pound bags of flour and sugar and different brands, of course, and each of them might, like the packaging looks different in terms of branding, but the sizes and just in the big bulk, that's it, right? That's what you saw. That's right. The category is predominantly big bags. It's five pound bags of flour and four pound bags of sugar. And the graphics have changed over time, but not quite as much as you may think. And the bags still poof out all the flour when you pick them up, right? Exactly. The section's a mess uh-huh. because the bags poof out the flour and it drops down through the shelves. And if you're not cleaning it 24 times a day, the flour will leave residue on the shelf. So it was a little bit messy. And we did a little more research on this category. And back in the 1950s, the average household size was 3.6 people. Now it's 2.4 people. It's decreased quite a bit over the last 70 years. And people are baking a lot less from scratch because there's alternatives. You could buy pre-baked goods, or you could buy mixes that have all the sugar and flour and everything already combined, so you only have to add water. So what had happened is the consumers have changed quite a bit, and how they use the products have changed quite a bit over the last 70 years, but the packages were still four-pound bags and five-pound bags on the shelf. So our opportunity was to try to find a package that fit better with today's consumers, with the baby boomers, with the millennials, and with the Gen Xers, and that's what we did. So what our product is, it sounds kind of simple, but it meets a need, right? Just like bottled water is kind of simple. And what we do is we pre-measure the products, the flour or the sugar. We put them in one cup pre-measured pouches, measured by weight, because that's how baking is supposed to happen. And we put those stay fresh pouches, six of those into a box. And the consumer gets to open them when they need them. It keeps the product inside fresh. And it also uh, is very neat. It's neat in the pantry. You don't have to have a big bag that's rolled up or a bag that you dumped into a secondary container. You open it when you need it and pour it into your recipe. And the other ones remain closed and fresh until you need them. 
So that's our company. It's called Good Measures. That's our brand name. And our tagline is Scratch Baking Made Simple because that's what we want to do. We want to help people not lose that scratch baking, but make it a little bit easier for them. So that is absolutely brilliant. And I think everybody who's listening can see the application and understand the value of what you've done. I mean, I know there's way more to this, and I'm going to dive into the story a little bit more, but it's very simplistic in the way you said it. Like you just went in, you identified the need, you did some research, you looked at everything, now you have your solution. So that's from like idea creation to finished product, right? That's correct, yeah. Who's your target customer? Our target customer is... The occasional baker that wants a really quality output. And if you think about it from the context of scratch baking for most households is a very infrequent activity now. So when you do it, it's usually on a special occasion. And if you're baking for a special occasion, you want it to be great. So our target audience is not the remainder of the people that bake every day and they use up a five pound bag of flour in two weeks and they're in the kitchen all the time doing that. It's the people that are going to bake on birthdays or other holidays and they want a great outcome. Right. And actually, if I think about it, if I'm going to bake, I don't want to buy one of those huge big bags if I only need a cup of flour because it's going to go stale over time. But with yours, I mean, you don't buy just one. You don't buy it by the cup. I get it. There's there's multiples in a box, but they stay fresh so I can use them later, too. I'm not opening this bag and then feeling like, oh, my gosh, this flour has been open for six months. Now I have to go buy a whole nother bag. Exactly. A lot of people don't know that. Here's a fact I'd for you. Flour from the day it's milled and when it's put into the paper bags, it starts to deteriorate. And actually, after six months, it starts to degrade, and the quality of your baked goods isn't going to be as good as using fresh flour. Since our flour is sealed in the plastic pouches, it extends the shelf life to well over a year. But if you think about the baking cycle, there's households out there that will only bake every holiday season, right? So they buy a five pound bag of flour, they break their cookies. Everybody loves their cookies. They roll up the bag of flour, put it in the pantry. And next year, I don't have to buy flour again. I have some in my pantry. And they use that same flour and the cookies aren't as good. And they're not quite sure why. Were you in my kitchen, Roger? (laughs) (laughs) It looks like many people's kitchens these days, I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Except now I'm one of those people that now we're going to be talking about after the holidays. But let's say I was going to make now Valentine's Day cookies, right? I need my fresh Mm -hmm. flour. So I'm wasting a ton of money. Well, probably between like the holidays and Valentine's Day, I'd probably use the same bag, but not come the summer. Right. And your cooking is going to be better for your baking. And I really, really like, and you and I talked about this when we first met, but the whole concept of not everyone is a professional baker and knows all the tricks and techniques and all of that, but lots of people, when they're measuring a cup of flour, will pack it down. Yeah. And the results are going to be different because really your cup and the recipes are created for, what would you say, like sifted flour, which is why you measure by weight, right? So that's a great lead in. Thank you. And I'll pay you later. Okay. Ooh, what are you going to talk to us about now? I don't even know. (laughs) Well, fact to factoid number two is that the average baker, especially the millennials and the Gen Xers, they'll scoop the flour. They'll scoop it out of the bag or they'll scoop it out of the secondary container in which they put the flour. And when you scoop the flour, it's compressed. 
So it does weigh more than sifted flour and recipes generally are calling for sifted flour. So when you do the scoop method, your cup of flour will weigh between 140 and 150 grams. A cup of sifted flour is supposed to weigh 120 grams or four and a quarter ounces. That's a big difference. Yeah. When you're over measuring your flour and your recipe by 20%, your outcome isn't going to look like the picture in the magazine. It's going to be less than satisfactory. So we solved that issue. We solved that problem and taking take the guesswork out of the measuring with good measure. So with your product... And GiftBiz listeners, we're going through this, and this is interesting for you to think about in relation to your product as well, because we're talking about the results that the consumer sees with the product. We're talking about the facts, but then we're talking about the results. So the results are going to be, you're just going to have a better end product. It's going to be tastier, and it's going to be what the intended recipe is supposed to be producing, right? Right. Absolutely. The other thing I would say is it's going to be a whole lot less messy because you don't have to have your measuring cup. I don't know about anybody else. If I were to sift the flour, let's just go with that, Roger. Okay. (laughs) If I'm going to do that, well, I've got my sifter. Then I've got my measuring cup that I'm trying to measure into. Like there's all this stuff. And then the flour makes all these like the powdery mess. And with yours, it just take the bag and you put it in and you're on your way to the next step. That's right on. Yeah, flour is a very messy ingredient. I forgot how messy it was until I started this business up. It goes everywhere. Oh, yeah, because the production facilities got to deal with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the production facilities, but even when I was testing in my own kitchen, you know, it's all over the countertop and in the crevices, but it also gets on the floor, on my clothing. Mm Mm-hmm. On the dog, if he's walking around <laughs> by my feet, and he tracks it around the house with his little paws. It's a messy ingredient to handle, and this makes it a lot easier for cleanup. It's a lot less messy. Yeah, I will say there's one advantage to the mess. What's that? Have you ever seen that commercial where a woman walks through the door and she's got like powder all over her because she's been baking forever? You know, and it's like, <laughs> look at how much work I've done because I love you, family, so much, <laughs> right? <laughs> That was a little fake out on that commercial too, if I recall, right? She did something that was easy, but then she went and got some flour and sprinkled on herself to make it look like she was working so hard. Yeah. So do you have some separate packs that are just for <laughs> that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea and a great concept. <laughs> that could be a good promo piece, actually. <laughs> I'm writing that one down as we speak. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So back to your audience, just a quick question. I know I have a lot of people who are listening who are starting to create a business and it's from their own home kitchen. So what they're baking is actually smaller batches right now and testing out their product, maybe just doing craft shows on the weekend, things like that. So they're starting to bake more than just to their family but it's still pretty small batches. Would your product then be good for them as well? My product would be great for them with the caveat. Of, it makes the baking experience much more efficient, right? Mm-hmm. From a standpoint, from a cleaning standpoint, those things. So it would be great from that standpoint. There's a cost angle on it. Packaging's not cheap. Right. In the old days with flour, they built all the packaging equipment right next to the mills. So they would mill the flour and it would go right in the paper bags. What we have to do is we bring in flour and we actually bring it in by the truckload and we put it in pouches and put the pouches in cartons and put the cartons in cases and the cases on pallets and get it shipped out the door. So there's a bit of a cost associated with that. So for each of your bakers, there's a cost benefit that goes with it. Right. Certainly this this can make you much more consistent on the amount that's being measured. 
it's going to be a much quicker process because the cleanup's not there and the measuring's not there. There's a bit of a cost with that. That's the watch out. Yeah, I'm guessing that there is a place where the value switches. Like in the beginning, if you're not using a lot of product, it could make sense because you're going to have fresher product. So your results are better because you want that because you want people to buy from you. You have less production in terms of actually making it and cleaning time, but at some point it flips over where there wouldn't be the cost advantage. Initially, there might be, and then at some point it might flip over as you grow. That's so right on, Sue. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So curious in terms of product development now, let's go back. Let's jump back into the middle of the story because you described what you do now in your production facilities as we were talking about the cost and packaging and all of that. But let's go back to the point where you see an opportunity, you see that people in the houses have gone down and the fact that we are more convenient. We're not doing as much home cooking and baking as we once were. So you see the opportunity. What did you do in terms of testing the concept? Because I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you just didn't go to, okay, we're already making this product. Like step us through once you really felt this idea could have legs. How did you test out the concept? We did a traditional marketing study. We did some focus groups. We got people together and we started with a sorting exercise where we put 120 items on a table and they sort them in different ways. And it's stuff that you usually see in the grocery store, but then it had some mock-ups of our product. And we got to see the people involved and engage and try to understand what it was. And then from the sort exercise, we kind of understood where we positioned versus other items, other products that are in the grocery store. We went into more of a does this fit into your lifestyle, the price points that you're willing to pay, those kind of things. And what was really exciting is part of a focus group, they test things out on a system they call box scores. And the boxes are would definitely buy, would definitely or probably buy, probably would not buy, and definitely would not buy. And 100% of the people that we had in these focus groups were in the top two boxes and the boxes that they would definitely buy it, or they would definitely or probably buy it. So you combine what we learned in the focus groups, what we had, our gut feels, Mm -hmm. and we were brave enough to go to market with it. And you also were seeing that it was at a price point where you could grow a business. Correct. Absolutely. Would you be willing to pay this price for it? And the answer was yes. Okay, perfect. Well, let me just stop you for half a second. So Gift Biz listeners, when I talk about testing your product at craft shows, you're not just selling what you've made, but you're checking to see consumers' interest in it, maybe certain flavors, certain sizes, certain colors. And then also you're testing your price points. So Roger has to do this a little bit differently through a focus group because he's selling flour, right, or measured flour. But this is exactly what I suggest you guys do when you're just starting out and you're at a craft show. Okay, so it's a similar concept. Okay, I just wanted to interject that there because this was a perfect example, Roger. So that's so important. And the focus groups were a point of reference, but I carry boxes of the product in my car. And I talk to everybody, friends and families about it when it's appropriate. And I'll bring boxes into the grocery stores and ask them about the item and if it fits into their life. So it's a continuous process for me. You can always get better, right? So I'm always asking about everything from the concept to the graphics on the package. Let's stop right here for a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll jump right back in to Roger's story. Yes, it's possible. Increase your sales without adding a single customer. How, you ask? By offering personalization with your products. 
wrap a cake box with a ribbon saying, Happy 30th birthday, Annie. Or add a special message and date to wedding or party favors for an extra meaningful touch. Where else can you get customization with a creatively spelled name or fine packaging that includes a saying whose meaning is known to a select two? Not only are customers willing to pay for these special touches, they'll tell their friends and word will spread about your company and products. You can create personalized ribbons and labels in seconds. Make just one or thousands without waiting weeks or having to spend money to order yards and yards. Print words in any language or font. Add logos, images, even photos. Perfect for branding or adding ingredient and flavor labels too. For more information, go to theribbonprintcompany.com. All right, Sue, I'd like to share a little story with you about how this business got started. And we talked about the concept and the idea and how we, seven years ago, we went from cigarettes into baking ingredients. That was a long time ago. And since then, I've been working with a number of small companies, helping them grow and grow very rapidly. And it's something that I had a strong desire to do for myself. So we had the great idea, but we hadn't put wheels and an engine on it to make it go. So you had the idea seven years ago? Yeah, we had the idea seven years ago, and it was always on the back of my mind that the consumers need this, that it's something out there. Were you, like, worried that somebody else was going to steal your idea if you were waiting? Every time I went into the grocery store, I walked by the baking (laughs) section to see if it was on the shelf yet. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Why did it take you a while? Well, I think that's probably part of your story. You're going to probably get into that. I'll let you just tell the story. How about that? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So it, it took me a little while to get to it. And the reason is because I was doing other things that I found fun and fascinating And I believe it was meant to be part of my journey. And over the past seven years, I helped three other small startup companies grow from under $3 million in sales, all three of them, to over $17 million, all three of them. So I was doing a lot of the work and a lot of other people recognized success. There had to be some learnings for you from that time too then that just would make you more confident as you were bringing your own product to market and things like that. Without a question. I believe the journey was there for me and I took the road I was supposed to take at the time. And all along the way, things were learned to make this venture more successful. So in March, working for a small company, helping them to get big, great company. We were having some success and this was really getting to me. And I knew that presentation times for retailers were upon us. So most retailers, what they'll do is they'll take presentations in January, February, and March for what they're going to put on the shelf in September and October, which is just prior to the baking season. So in March, I was in almost in a little bit of a panic mode. It's like there was something telling me that I needed to do this, but I was afraid. Wait, can I stop you? I have a question for you at this point. Had you gone through the focus groups we were talking about, or did you already have a sample product in hand? What point in the product evolution were you in this March timeframe? Seven years ago, we did all the focus groups back then. We had the concept developed. We had a package, although it's not the package that you see on shelf today. We had our brand name picked out, good measures. We had the logos picked out and those type of things. So the product was developed. Now, what we didn't have is places to buy ingredients, places to do production, shipping partners, package suppliers, and most importantly, customers. So in March, I go to church and I talk to the man upstairs, which I do when I have big decisions to make on my life. And I went to really ask for guidance of which way should I go with this? And my hopes or my expectation 
were not that great. My hopes would it be I would get a feeling in my stomach or something that kind of told me which way to go. So I'm there trying to figure it out. I'm listening to the Mass as it goes on, and it gets to the Gospel. And the last part of the Gospel that day is Luke 6.38. And the last part of Luke 6.38 says, Give, and gifts will be given to you. A good measure packed together, shaken down, and overflowing will be poured into your lap. No way. For the measure with which you measure will in turn be measured out to you. That wasn't very subtle. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I took that as a divine sign, and I actually said that out loud in church. Oh my gosh. And then I came home, and this was in March, and by April 1st, I set up the limited liability company and missed a lot of the appointments for the retailers, but I was able to get two of them. And one of them was a very big retailer in the Southeast, and it went down, got our samples, we got all our production and suppliers in order and all those type of things. Went down in April to see this customer, and he took both items. And this particular retailer has 1,216 stores, which is the scale to launch a business and to do it somewhat cost efficiently, where you actually have a chance to make enough money to invest back into doing things like marketing and stuff to grow your business. So I have the best partner in the world, or out of this world, I guess. I would say, well, you're right. That sign couldn't have been much clearer than that. Not a chance. But you got the sign that you should do it, right? What made you decide pedal to the metal, really, and do it for this season instead of getting it started gradually and then being there and ready for the following January, which would have been actually, interestingly, right now as we're talking, right? Yeah. So that was the backup plan. And the route I thought would actually happen, but there was a, some, a sense of urgency put into me about get out there and give it a shot. And I guess it came together pretty smoothly for you to be able to do it so quickly. Yeah. And what I'd like to say again is I have a great partner. That was just further confirmation that you were on the right track. Absolutely. He helped me meet the right people. And I have tremendous partners from a supply chain standpoint, from production to, to package suppliers, to ingredient suppliers that all... I presented the concept to them and they got it and they all became enthusiastic supporters. And the first time we did a run at the plant, all of my suppliers came out and helped package product. Oh, wow. So that they're all involved in it. And for them, what's in it, it's a little bit of, we think this is a winner. So a little bit of investment up front, we get to grow with the company. Right. So am I correct in understanding the story that you then had a couple of chains who were willing to take this on for this season, 2019? That's correct. Yes. Yep. We started small and we started with a really big retailer, but we don't have mass distribution yet. We could be Mm -hmm. found in the Southeast United States, but that's okay. The rest of them, I'm going to hit this January, February and March on time with the presentations and hopefully we'll see much bigger distribution when we look at the holiday season next year. Well, the way I look at that is the one big retailer that you had had an advantage because they have the product where nobody else does. So I'm not sure how they promoted it and all that. We'll get to that in a second. But that was a huge advantage because they had something that their competitors didn't have, which is good. The other thing I'm thinking, and you correct me if I'm wrong, this is just speculation here, is that now you have a stronger story to go in and talk with people as you're getting placement in stores right as we speak. That's right on. Yep. You got to start someplace. And the best way to start is with a success story of, look what this has done to their sales and profits. We could do it for you too. Mm -hmm. And 
again, this will also have to be speculation because this isn't the way it played out. But you could have gotten yourself in trouble if you had, let's say, 10 major retailers wanting to bring this on. Because that's a lot then to figure out just as you're starting out with the first runs. So in a way, this might have been a great way to build it. Not necessarily slow and small, because you said you reached your threshold in terms of financing and making it work for you to grow. But then you also weren't overwhelmed. Like, what if you had logistic problems? Or you saw something in the packaging wasn't working? Or a number of things could have happened. So in a way, this was the best case scenario. Again, kudos to your partner, right? Yeah, exactly. There's no question that I was blessed to be able to work through this on a somewhat limited scope because it is helping us fill in some of the potholes that are in the road. Right. So it's been good that way. But I do have to tell you, Sue, I find a way to get in trouble just about every day. (laughs) So what happened? (laughs) I love that. Okay. (laughs) Give us that story. So if if I would have gotten 10 customers or 20 customers, if I would have gotten too many, I would have been in trouble for a day and then we would have went into the problem solving mode, figure out how to make it work. Well, that's kind of what we do as business owners, right? There's always a problem. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way life goes. Some are bigger than others, but that's just the way it is. Sure. So for people who are in a consumable business, because when you're talking about retailers and stores, it's all probably grocery, maybe multi-departments like a Kmart is or Target, you know, people who have grocery and other, but you're placed obviously in the grocery section. So for people who also have products who might see interest or have interest in placement there, share with us a little bit as if we're brand new to this, of how the division of responsibilities goes. Because, okay, so you go, you have a presentation, you are granted or you buy in shelf space in the store or department, depending on what it is. Who's then responsible for putting the promotions together, having shelf talkers, promoting it into social media or print ads, whatever the strategy is. How does that all get divided out? So a lot of this is good measures as a small company. Right now we have one employee and you're talking to them. So I'm learning a lot as we go. And I've learned a lot in the past that I can bring forward. And full disclosure, I've worked in the consumer packaged goods industry for 30 years now. I've made a lot of contacts and the way that I'm able to do this is through the people I meet that don't work for the company, but help that work for the company. For instance, is our major retailer that we have in the Southeast, have a great broker partner there, okay? And the brokers, the in-between on the manufacturers and the retailers, and he was able to gain access, which is one of the big barriers when you try to go to retail stores. It's just getting audience. Let me talk to you about something because those people who make those decisions are inundated with those requests. Mm -hmm. So we got access and we were able to close it. As far as package development For instance, the company that I buy the cartons from, they supply the cartons, which is great, but they also have some value-added services, and they help with design and mock-ups for sales presentations and those kind of things, again, because they wanted to see success. Yeah, because your success is going to be their success, too. Yep. The ingredient suppliers were happy to send samples, which the plant was happy to put into pouches for me to take in as sales samples to the retailers. Mm Mm-hmm. So right now, being small, one person with lots of help from lots of great suppliers, looking forward, there will be a time in the not-too-distant future where we're going to have to scale. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole 
whole nother set of fun, right? Finding all the right people to do the right things and dividing up the responsibilities, who's going to own the supply chain and the manufacturing and who's going to own the marketing and who's going to own the back room and the accounting and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for right now, though, for this last season, the holiday season 2019 that we were just through, the retailer then was the one who promoted the product. You had to promote and sell it into the retailer, but they're the ones who are promoting in store and in print that they have your product available. Yeah, so that's a great question. They make the decisions on it and they're the ones who ultimately promote it, but they don't do that for free, right? So if you, we just went off sale, we had our first ad, we were in an ad with our picture of our product in the store and that's very important to gain trial and awareness. And while we were in the ad, we had the price reduced on the shelf and the retailer doesn't pay for that. The supplier does or me. So I ran at zero margin for a couple of weeks to drive that trial and awareness to get the consumers to try the product that will bring them back in the future to buy it for full price. Right. And that's all just part of your product introduction strategy and promotion, all of that. Exactly. That's our investment. And by the way, the retailer is very invested in making this work too. When they decided to put good measures on the shelf, they decided to take somebody else off the shelf and also not put somebody else on the shelf. So they made a decision which their bosses are watching and ultimately their shareholders are watching. Mm-hmm. They're very vested in seeing good measures be successful. You know, for their review at the end of the year, it's like, well, you put in these items and they weren't successful. That's a bad reflection on you. So That's another place where it's teamwork. I want good measures to succeed. He wants good measures to succeed. We work together to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, this is so interesting, Roger, because your product by nature has to go in large retailers, not just the more local retailers, which I want to get to in a second. So as you're talking, you're talking about how things have to happen on, I get that you're saying a small scale, but a small scale by number of retailers, but these retailers are big, they're mass. Correct. So I know a little bit about the grocery industry from my corporate life, (laughs) but to your point, I mean, shelf space is a premium and different shelf and I'm talking to our listeners now. So different placement is worth, there's different value. So like eye level is different than lower on the shelf, et cetera. And a retailer, if you think about a store, there's only so much space available. So space is at a premium and it gets sold and allocate their spreadsheets and all this craziness. So what Roger's talking about is for him to get shelf space is a big deal because the shelf space is currently being used by somebody. So either someone's space is going to shrink, get taken away completely, or somebody else that they were thinking about putting in won't be put in because good measures is going to be put in. So it's a huge, big deal. So it's interesting and really enlightening to see all of that. And let me just make sure, let me do a checkpoint here. Am I correct in everything I've said, Roger? Well said. Okay, perfect. So, but now I want to relate it to some of our listeners who are like, okay, I am not selling pre-measured flour. I just want to get my cupcakes into the regional local grocer that has five shops. Okay. It's good to know 
how it works on a larger scale because then you're educated and more informed when you go in and talk to a smaller scale and something that you can actually provide product to, right? So because you're probably producing out of your kitchen or in a smaller commercial kitchen, you know, whatever your situation is. But knowing that there's value of space allocated and how important that is to a grocer as a business owner unto itself is really good to know. The other thing is, and I'm thinking, I don't know if you know this or not, Roger, but on a smaller level, if you can go in and talk about the value and how you'll be promoting that your product is also on the shelves of a local shop through social media or whatever avenues you already promote your business, maybe you show it on a website. As now seen in here in Chicago, we have Sunset, which is a local grocer. That could also help bump you into the store because they're seeing that you're also helping because they want to move product, right? And they always want to have something new and interesting. So don't think because you're not at Roger's size that you don't have the value to get your product in a shop. In fact, I would suggest that you do because being a local baker provides a lot of interest and excitement into the local grocers. Agree, disagree, Roger? What would you add to that? Sue, you're right on. Unless you're fortunate enough to have very deep pockets, going big right out of the blocks has its challenges. By the way, I don't have deep pockets. I got a little bit lucky with that whole thing. But to start at a local retailer, to go to your local store and talk to the store manager at a time when they're not busy, bring your product in there and get their support. In a lot of cases, that local store manager will have the ability to make decisions. And if not, they'll be able to tell you who could make the decisions, mm-hmm. right? If you go over to Sunset Foods, talk to that sales manager, and they may be able to bring your product right in. So boom, you have one store. When you go for that conversation, if you're selling cupcakes, don't just walk in with a plate full of cupcakes and have them taste them and expect it to be on the shelf. You do need to think about all the other stuff that's going to make life very, very easy for the retailer. You're going to have to know your cost and the recommended sell price and how you're going to promote it and what the shelf life is and the packaging, if you could bring mock-ups of what it looks like when it gets delivered to the store and how it gets delivered to the store. And by the way, if you're small and you only have one store or five stores, there's nothing wrong with driving it to the store yourself saying, you know, every other Monday, I'm going to stop by and check on your inventory and drop off some more to make sure that you have enough product in stock. Oh, love that. And I even think when you start looking at which of the first stores you might go to, just like you were walking down aisles of a grocery store, go into all of these. And there are still independent one or two location grocers that would love not to have to seek out new product, but to have you come in and show it to them. You're doing part of their work then. Oh, they love that. And there's always a big push for local. And if you're the person that lives down the street and they could promote you because you're local and you did this and you're telling the neighbors and friends that you have and they're telling people and it's driving traffic into the stores, it's it's real synergistic and it works for everybody. Yeah, love that. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer or not or want to answer how this is going to go. So we'll see how this goes. But you have so much experience in consumer packaged goods, and then you were helping those three other businesses grow so well. What advice or suggestions do you have based on things that people might either have done wrong or just not know what to do? Can you give us some suggestions on growth ideas or product development ideas of things to do to start or grow your business around the baking industry or consumable products overall? I guess there's not one answer for it. When it comes to 
new products and new items. Life's about a very, very meaningful point of difference. And if you're going to go in and sell the next salsa and your salsa is better than any other salsa on the shelf because it has 10% more onions, that's fine. And you may have friends telling you that that's a good thing and stuff. But for a retailer, it's probably going to be a little bit of a shrug. You know, I heard somebody else yesterday coming in telling me they had 10% more jalapenos and that makes their salsa better. Because it's a big deal taking out and putting in new products. Yeah. And if you're a startup company, any buyer that you talk to at a retailer has been burned. They've taken an item in and then the company hasn't been able to deliver. So that hurts them a lot. They take a risk. They put their neck out on the line for you. Things like how do you get UPCs and how do you put those UPCs on the cartons and what are the rules? And And if you put those into a master case to ship them around, what does that look like? And what are those rules? And a lot of things that I've learned along the way, that goes back to being really buttoned up as you can when you walk in. But back to the big things, point of differences, and it's finding that white space for consumers. What unmet needs are there out there that you can meet? And for me, it was, well, that's simple. Uh, putting flour into pouches, but it's something that's different. It's something that is a bigger difference than just, I use a wheat that's a little bit different in my flour that's got a 2% less protein or something. Right. I mean, it's super different and it has real benefits. Yes. So that's the biggie. If I was still in the consulting business, I had a company called Trade Management Partners where I was helping startup companies. The ones I would want to talk to, I reviewed their offerings. The ones I wanted to talk to are the ones that had those meaningful points of difference because that's easy. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the meaningful points of difference, they're just close in points of difference, just a little bit extra onions or whatever. It's very hard to sell in. And generally, they're not going to, if you buy your way in, because that's what they're going to say, I can't put you on the shelf for free. You're too much like everything else. But if you pay my exorbitant slotting fees, and slotting's a big deal in the retail industry, I'll put you on the shelf and you'll have six months to be successful. That costs way too much money, especially for small startup companies. And it's probably not going to be a success. Right. Always kind of looking for something that's just a little bit Yeah, and it could be size, it could be flavors, it could be style, maybe, because not everyone's going to find something that has such obvious white space as yours. Right, yep. In color and positioning, (laughs) I might add. That goes back to our beginning, though, on testing it. If you think you have a great idea, a great concept, we did some formal focus groups, but there's nothing wrong with having 10 of your friends sit around the table and friends that you can trust to give you really honest feedback to say, hey, that is different enough and that does have a place in my life or they could help you brainstorm if it's not exactly right. Get where you're going, but if we look at it this way instead of that way and change it just a little bit, then it starts to really deliver against an unmet need that's out there. Excellent point. Excellent. How far do you think relationships can go in product placement? Like, for example, if you have some grocers who are part of the chamber, which that might sound unrealistic, but I know in my location for a while, some of these smaller independent grocers were part of the local chamber. Like just having people get to know you as a person, because you could also then ask questions about your product with them. Would this be something that's attractive to your store potentially? Things like that. What do you think about the relationship angle? Yeah, relationships are its everything for me since right now we're a one-person company. So relationships from all the operation standpoint, but also from sharing mind, getting opinions from people you respect, getting out there and meeting others to give input is really important. 
And on the selling side, relationships are oh so important. It's really about if you find somebody that's got a relationship with those customers you want to go to, they can at least get you access. Might not get you all the way in, but they're going to get you face-to-face meeting. Then you're carrying the ball. Then it's your turn to make it work. Agreed. So once you're in the store, what type of follow-up or how do you ensure that you stay there? You use your partners again. So the first thing is to ensure that you get on the shelf. Okay. And you can purchase reporting. If you're a small company and you've gotten this far, the buyer, the decision maker is probably your friend and they'll share information with you on the percent of store selling and things like that. The beginning of any product life cycle, it's all about trial and awareness. How can you buy something if you don't know it's there, right? right. Or if you don't know what the, how it meets a need in your life. So the beginning is about trial and awareness, and then it turns into buying rate and trying to sell more to shoppers afterwards. But in the beginning, invest in things that will get awareness about your brand. And it may be things like the feature ad that you were in, that Good Measures was in. It may be things like price reductions, because when you do a price reduction, you usually get a tag on the shelf that has a burst that says, hey, look at me. It could be things like product demos. If you have a detergent that gets out stains better than any other detergent spray or something like that, you can do demonstrations and spill gravy on your shirt and show people how it <laughs> cleans up. Well, or samples, like you were saying, in-store samples. Yes, absolutely. Samples. Some things sample better than others, right? Sampling a lollipop's really easy. You hand it over to them and they taste it and either they love it or they hate it. Sampling an ingredient is a little harder, right? Because I don't want them to taste the flour if it's not part of a cupcake. Right. For your product, that wouldn't work. Right. But I could hand out a pouch for them to take home. And that's still a type of sampling, right? So next time they bake, they have the capability to, oh, I can pull out that thing that I got at the store the other day. See how it works here. As you look into the future, what do you think you and your partner have in store for Good Measures Foods? No, that's a great question. It's a really appropriate question right now. Do you know today's December 5th, right? December 5th, 5th, 2019. Mm-hmm. As we're interviewing today, yeah. Yes, yeah. as our interview is today. And what that means is we have exactly 26 days left in this decade, right? So it's a great time <laughs> to look back and see what we've done over the last 3,652 days. And if we're satisfied with ourselves, but also look forward to see what we want to do for the next 3,652 days. So your question's a great one right now as we're getting aspirational and thinking about what we want for the future. And for me, Sue, for good measures, it's $100 million in sales, and then it's delivering on our mission. And our mission is to deliver precisely measured top quality ingredients, which result in the best scratch baking experience and best home-baked goods loved by bakers, families, and friends while delivering value to shareholders, employees, and customers. And most importantly, contributing to a better world. That part, I don't have defined well yet. It's contributing to a better world. But I can tell you, it's probably going to have something to do with feeding hungry people and making sure that there's a lot less hungry people in the world. It makes sense because it's a natural spinoff. Absolutely. It's a natural spinoff. And it's me giving in good measures. That's what's important. Yeah. And you are really concrete in terms of the dollar amount that you're looking for, the valuation, right? Mm -hmm. Yep or the revenue, however, whatever that you want to call that number, the product mm-hmm. that you have with possibly extensions and all that, and also the goal for more gift back. You might not know exactly where you're going, but you know that that's part of the equation. We have 26 days to figure it out. Yep. <laughs> Only 26, right? Because day <laughs> one of the next decade, you got to get going. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't want to let a day go by. <laughs> there you go. 
Well, listen, here on Gift Biz Unwrapped, we've started doing past guest spotlights. So as you keep going, I'm going to be checking back with you and I'm going to expect a report from you. This is an accountability section I just added into the show. That's wonderful. Yeah, so you'll be able to give us all an update of how things are progressing and what the give back is because potentially we could all contribute to it, right? I look forward to it. Yes, that would be great. Yes, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This has been a fabulous chat because it's a different perspective entering into the market in a different way from bigger consumer packaged goods versus what we're usually looking at, which is the local level. So it's given us more knowledge. It's given us more insight, great understanding, and your story is phenomenal. To think that it started with cigarettes, continued into church, and now what you're doing is like a story unlike any other. So I love it. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Well, Sue, thank you for letting me share, and it's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. I can't wait for Good Measures to be here on the grocery shelves in Chicago. Meanwhile, if you're in a Publix market, Go down the baking aisle and see if you can spot the pre-measured, individually packaged flour. Publix was the chain Roger referenced several times, and I'm pretty sure by now they've added locations. Better yet, take a picture of a Good Measure sighting and tag me at giftbizunwrapped on Instagram. If you see them giving out samples, extra points. (laughs) Up next week, We'll be talking with a brand management expert behind products such as the Foreman Grill, OxyClean, and GoPro. Aren't you curious about how these products became the household names we know today? Tune in on Monday to find out. Better yet, subscribe to the show and each episode will be downloaded automatically. I just learned that in iTunes these days, sometimes it takes a while for the latest episode to show up in your feed. But when you're subscribed, you get it immediately, right when it's published. So there is another benefit for subscribing. All right, then make it a great week and bye for now. I want to make sure you're familiar with my free Facebook group called Gift Biz Breeze. It's a place where we all gather and are a community to support each other. I've got a really fun post in there that's my favorite of the week, I have to say, where I invite all of you to share what you're doing, to show pictures of your product, to show what you're working on for the week, to get reaction from other people, and just for fun because we all get to see the wonderful products that everybody in the community is making my favorite post every single week, without doubt. Wait, what? Aren't you part of the group already? If not, make sure to jump over to Facebook and search for the group Gift Biz Breeze. Don't delay. Come join us in Gift Biz Breeze today.